We've been uh, in Ephesians for a while, and then we uh, have been in a little mini-series in Ephesians called Sex is Fire. Um, and that's because the scriptures do consistently call sex fire. They use that, um, that metaphor over and over to describe what sex is. And we, we, um, we've noted that it, it can be really beautiful, and it can be really good, but it can also um, get out of control, and it can also burn and destroy um, this is part three of that series. And the question that animates us today is, what if sin wins? Uh, so we started out, we started out talking about sex. I mean, <laughs> we said uh, sex is a, a warm, bright fire uh, on a cold, dark night. And it was, it's, it's a metaphor designed to kind of capture what sex is meant to be in our lives. Uh, it's, it's meant to be... Um, you know, for um, the married couple, and it's meant to be this thing that, uh, that, that comforts and warms and, and creates intimacy and, and joy uh, between husband and wife. And the thing that happens um, when, when we, we treat it that way and when we nurture it that way is it, it is, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a warm, bright fire. It's, it's there, it's in front of us, and, it, and we find ourselves on this cold, dark night really grateful, deeply, deeply grateful for what God has given us. In uh, sexual intimacy, um, and, and that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's on our website if you want to listen to it. Last week we we got to some of the bad news. What happens? What happens when uh, sex gets out of control? You know, it starts out the the, the, the original image is it's this warm, bright fire on a cold, dark night. You can almost imagine a campfire. What happens when that campfire gets out of control? Well, it's an inferno, and sex can become an inferno in our lives. It, it, it jumps out from beyond where it's supposed to be, and it starts to consume and burn everything and everybody that we know. And to one extent or another, probably every person here has felt or seen this in some way in your life or in the life of somebody very close to you, where you've seen sex that, that it's, it's beyond, it's, it's, it's beyond the, the marriage bond, it's, it's beyond even um, just normalcy, where, where, where a rampant, crazy exploration and deviancy gets involved, and eventually it can even become an addiction, where it, it's just constant, and it's, it's a fire that we just have to keep feeding, no matter how much it destroys, no matter how, how much it burns. One of the things we, we talked a little bit about uh, last week was, was that God's not going to come in and he's going to put your fire out. Actually, the wrath of God poured out is God being willing to let you experience the consequences of the inferno and to see what ravages it has. Now, God's not going to put the fire out, but he is. He is going to offer an escape plan. We talked about that. The first thing is you've got to fight, battle against this inferno in your life. The second thing, don't buy the lies of the culture that says, you know, that, that what's the best kind of life is to let this thing burn and get out of control and fulfill your passions and desires. That's not, that is not the truth. And if you buy into that, you're going to get eaten up. Instead of those things, instead, do life with people who understand what sex is supposed to be. People in the church, primarily, do life with them. doesn't mean only hang out with them. You, know, you can hang out with lots of people. But you do life. You do life with the people who recognize what sex is for. But what if sex wins? What if the inferno wins? What if sin wins in your life. We all know people in our lives. In fact, we can reflect and even think about our own lives, and we recognize there have been times in our life when sin was winning. Now, Paul's primarily talking about sex, but it doesn't just have to be sex. 
But we know that there are times in life when sin runs away with us, when it consumes us, when it rules us, when it owns us. And what happens if that never stops? What happens if sin wins? As far as sex goes, we live in the most challenging time in history. We, uh, so in, in, uh, in, I think it's like 78 AD or something like that, right in the 70s AD, um, Pompeii, a city in Rome, um, there was a volcano that blew up. And one of the things that happened was all the ash from the volcano kind of settled on this city and it, just as people were living their lives and froze it. It's frozen in time. And we go and we've, we've excavated Pompeii. We have a whole bunch of information about it. One of the things that we, we see is the, is the graffiti in Pompeii. We see uh, some of the stuff that people were talking about. And it's honestly, it's kind of like Twitter. If you look at it, it's just people saying these awful things. You know, it's, most of it has to do with sex. Most of it has to do with nasty stuff. Most of it has to do with hating people. It's, it's, it's not very different than the graffiti we have today, only, only it's frozen for us. We can see the end. But what's crazy about it is as much as it describes awful, you know, you know a lot of different sinful stuff, uh, it, it, that, that's all they had in the ancient world, right? They could, they could go and they could scrawl things on the wall. That's it. We live in a world where you can put it on the internet constantly for all to see. We live in a, con- in, in, in a context of social media where we are completely consumed. We, it is broadcast to us. And if it's not social media, it's, it's the it's 24-hour news cycle. It's, it's the, the media we receive on the television and, and, and on, our, on our, our cell phones, uh, in, in our music. In everything we do, we're constantly inundated with what was just left, just left for the walls of Pompeii. It's in every part of our life. It is harder now to get away from the inferno than it ever has been before. There's a, a, a little meme called uh, Rule 17. It's, a, it's an internet joke, and, and the joke, kind of a joke, is that if you can imagine it, there's pornography on the internet. Now that's a little bit hyperbolic, but not much. It's everywhere. Temptation is constant, not only because it's everywhere, but also because we're richer now than we've ever been in world history. We have more leisure time than anyone has ever had in world history. There was an interesting phenomenon in the 1950s when uh, vacuum cleaners and, 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 and dishwashers were invented. Women started to find themselves bored because things that had taken all day could now be compressed into, what, six and a half, seven hours? I don't know, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna get involved there. But there, there's actually, there's actually articles you can read as people are trying to adjust to a new life in, in the West, in the first world, where they've got all this time on their hands. And what do we do with it? Soccer. Soccer, right. Better soccer than some other things. Self-control has never been harder because we're richer and we have more freedom than ever before. And what if sin wins? What if with that we get enslaved, we get owned, we get ruled by the inferno? And not just sex, but, but other types of inferno. Jealousy. I mean, is it, we, I, I feel like in some ways we've never been more jealous because we never have known more about the people next to us than we do now. You know, it's not just keeping up with the Joneses. It's keeping up with people that you haven't seen in years. It's keeping up with people across the country, across the world, that you now know about. And that starts to burn, and that flame gets 
out of control, or it's material wealth, it's this thing that you need. It's social power, it's, it's having status. And, and now we're, we've, we're, more, we're more understanding of status than we ever have before. It's why our, our teen suicide rate is, is going through the roof, especially in the world of social media where it's really, really clear who's in and who's out, and that expands and expands and expands, and that begins to consume people, and so everything that you do in life is built around maintaining or increasing status, and it, it's an inferno, it's a rage. Business power, political power, as we move into the election season, we're going to see more and more people whose lives are built around an R or a D, or an I or a whatever, L. Or addiction. With the wealth and the leisure, never have we had an epidemic of drugs like we have right now. We've seen it in, in our congregation, in our lives, amongst our friends, people that we know, the power of addiction to consume and to wreck and to destroy. And we felt it in our own lives at times. And maybe we're feeling it right now. Or maybe we're in close community or family with somebody who's feeling it right now. And last week, yeah, God, we talked about the escape plan that God provides. But what if, what if sin wins? When Paul writes to the churches and, and other New Testament authors, authors they believe that it's not going to win. They say things like, I'm confident of you, brothers. I'm confident of you, friends, that this isn't going to be the case, that you're going to find a way, that you're going to be rescued and delivered, that the Spirit's going to come. I'm confident about those things, but we know, every single one of us, that that's not always the case. Every single one of us knows that sometimes sin wins. Last week, I, I, I told the story of uh, the day before seventh grade. When we woke up in the middle of the night, and I woke up to my father yelling, Get out! Get out! Thomas, get out of the house! There was a, a fire in our garage. He had uh, cleaned up some tar and thrown it in the trash can in the, in the garage, and, and overnight it had spontaneously combusted. And it was a slow-burning fire. And what was really interesting about this fire is it was sucking up all the oxygen in the garage, and the garage was sealed. And there's two entrances to the garage. There's one that goes into our house. It's a small door. And then there's the garage door made out of wood. When we tore out of that house, uh, what had happened was all the oxygen in the garage had been consumed, and so it was sucking oxygen from outside of the garage, but there were only two entry points, this door and the garage door. And when, we, when the fire had been put out, we, we, we looked and we saw that the door into our house was bowed in like this because of the, the force sucking the door in because the, the fire was so hungry for oxygen. What happens in a situation like that is if the oxygen runs out and the door pops in, it's called a backdraft. They made a movie about it with Kurt Russell. The, the, fire, the flame flows through uh, the, 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 the new um, entrance, and, and it consumes the, the air around it. And so the whole area outside of where the fire is suddenly goes up in an inferno like that. And we were just a few minutes away from that when my dad got us out of the house. A few minutes away from the whole house going up, torched. And I remember a couple hours after we, we'd kind of calmed down and we were sitting through, my dad weeping. Because he kept asking the question, what if, what if we hadn't gotten out? 
everything would have been consumed. What if sin wins? Let's read the text. For you can be sure of this. Nobody who regularly participates in extramarital sex, rampant sexual exploration, or sexual greed, and if you want to hear about those things, you can read um, or listen to a couple of our, our sermons in the last couple of weeks, which is idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and in the kingdom of God. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and in the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived by anyone's empty words. Because God's wrath comes down on the children of disobedience on account of these things. Don't do life with those kinds of people. I just want to sit. I want to sit with that word inheritance. You have no inheritance. What does that mean? My uncle Kenny was disinherited. I think this is true. One of my relatives. Um, for whatever reason, uh, one of my relatives uh, by marriage uh, lived in a way that, that um, his parents just didn't approve of. And it wasn't that it was anything bad. It was just that apparently the parents were kind of weird. I, I never met them, but I've heard uh, that this happened. And so they're, they're sitting there, and they, they go through. They have the, the funeral, the, the, all of this, and everyone's you know, crying and weeping. And then the, the lawyer comes in to talk about the will. And it turns out that you know, a fairly significant estate had been liquidated to charity. <laughs> my uncle's like, what? <laughs> that, that nest egg, right? That chance to quit. Gone. They left him out of the will, but they didn't stop being his parents. That's kind of an intuitive thing that we think about when we think about inheritance. It's something that we kind of expect. It's something we're, in a way, owed. By being in the family, we get to possess all of our parents' debt. <laughs> or or in, you know, in other cases, all of their, all of their wealth. That's, that's something we get. Being disinherited doesn't mean not a child. In fact, uh, interestingly, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, um, the word inheritance, this is in your note sheets, in the Old Testament, inheritance meant a region in the promised land owned by a family or tribe in perpetuity. In perpetuity. This is the word inheritance. If you, if you just get a, a concordance or you Google inheritance in the Old Testament and you look at all the different places where it's, that word is used, and especially the uh, Greek translation, you're going to find the same word that Paul uses is used almost exclusively to talk about what the children of Israel were going to get when they got into the promised land. And then once they were there, to talk about what they had received when they got to the promised land. And it wasn't just that they all got to live in this place. That wasn't the inheritance. Okay, So they're, they're, they've, they're on, on the way back from, from slavery in Egypt, and they're being told, they're, they, they've got the law from Moses, and they're being told, when you get there, when you get there, tribe of Dan, or tribe of Benjamin, or tribe of Judah, or tribe of whomever, Simeon, when you get there, we, we're going to divide it up, right? We're going to divide the land up, and there's going to be a place for you, and for your family. It's going to be yours forever. And, and they, they, they even understood, they even understood that people were going to sell land and lose land because of famine and whatnot. And they even had a, a law set up so that if you lost your family plot, your inheritance, it would be returned to you after a certain number of years because it was yours forever. God was the father of all Israel. And so everyone, just by being his child, just by being his child, was given, was owed, was to receive an inheritance, a special plot, a place for them in the land. Well, not everyone, actually, 
almost everyone had an inheritance. This is from uh, Numbers 18. It says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I'm your portion. I'm your inheritance. For the tithe of the children of Israel, which they offer up, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore I have said to them, Among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Aaron is, is code word for priests. Levites is code word for priests. There was a class of people in ancient Israel, the priests, who had no special plot, no place that was theirs forever, that they could till and create and enlarge and become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and enjoy the prosperity of the land. That was forbidden them. They didn't have it. Now, they got something. They, the, the tithes of, of Israel were kind of supplying their needs. And if you're listening, you might hear how the church works, Right? Um, the church works based on the tithes of the people who come in. You, you give money, and then the church and presumably my family survive. It's, it's similar. It's, it's where, we, where we draw some of our, our thinking about how um, pastors and, and church staff survive. But what's interesting, what's interesting is that these people have no inheritance. They're not given this special thing that's, that's owed or, or, or given as birthright to all the people of Israel. They do get something, though. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of funny. They get their own cities. If you uh, read the Old Testament law, they get these uh, modestly sized cities that, the, that the, the priests have to kind of administrate, which is very strange. I mean, kind of sweet deal, right? You don't get, you don't get a family plot, but the, the, the people of Israel are going to give you a special city that you, they're going to pay for it. You don't have to do anything. All you got to do is live there. That sounds really great. But there's a reason. There's a reason why they had that, why they were able to live rent-free in a city. In order to understand it, maybe we could think about this. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I read a story where, I think it was in uh, Laguna Canyon, a young girl, um, I think a teenager, maybe early 20s, was driving in the canyon, and uh, she got a text. And so she um, didn't pay attention and just got where she was going. No, she did what we all do. She picked up her phone. Uh, she saw the text while she was driving. And then um, she one-handed began to reply, started a conversation, and kept driving. And then the one thing that we all pray never happens, happened. There was a bicyclist on the side of the road, and she hit him and killed him because she wasn't paying attention. And we all have a reaction to that, right? Like on the one hand, some of us are like, good. That's what happens. We hear that she's, you know, tossed in jail. I think they made an example out of her, right? Like 20-some years in prison um, for what she did. And we think, good, deterrent. We need to get her off the streets. She's a problem. And some of us think, yeah, except that could have been me. There have been a lot of times where I've been looking at my phone, and then I look up and I swerve back into the middle of the road because I wasn't paying attention. And thank God that didn't happen to me. 20 years? Man, she's got to live with what she did. Well, in our system, we have just one thing we can do. We can throw her in jail and toss away the key. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. We don't have a way of, of dealing with that. Ancient Israel did have a way of doing, dealing with this. A situation like this. Where something terrible happened. A person, you know, got in a situation that was really bad. In fact, he maybe even killed somebody. Uh, and listen, listen to this. 
is uh, from Numbers again. Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you sh- the, uh, this is the Israelites' her- inheritance, right? They have some of their inheritance. They dump a little bit of that on the Levites to give them these cities. And you shall also give the Levites common land around the cities. There's like a, a buffer zone around their cities that's going to be roped off just for the Levites. Now, among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge or sanctuary. Six sanctuary cities to which a manslayer, a person who's committed manslaughter or homicide, may flee. And to these, you shall add 42 cities. In the tradition, these Levite cities become known as sanctuary cities. They become the place where you go when you have nowhere else to turn. So it mentions a manslaughter. I want you to notice that it's kind of weird. So if you look back in the Old Testament, you find out that 48 cities are set aside for the priests throughout the land. And here we find out that six of them are for people who've committed homicide, a manslayer. And to these you shall add another 42. So there's 48 total. Six are for somebody who's committed um, involuntary manslaughter or, and honestly, the way it works out, even voluntary, even just straight up you know, murder. Um, they, they go to these six. These, uh, that's because each of these cities, uh, the priests kind of have two guys at the door at all times. And so any time of the day or night, you can run up to the sanctuary city and you can bang on the door and you can say, let me in. And at 42 of these cities, those 42 right there, the, the priests can hear you out, and they say, you did what? Nope, absolutely not. You, get, you move along. You go to one of those six. That's what the six were for. Um, but, or, or maybe you, you came up and you're like, look, I know I shouldn't have done this, but uh, I maybe have committed a little bit of adultery. And maybe her husband's really mad. And maybe he's about 10 minutes down the road and I'm pretty sure he's going to kill me. Will you let me in? And in 42 of those cities, the priest would say, okay. You went into the sanctuary city and you were safe. That guy who wanted blood because of what you did to him, he couldn't touch you. Moreover, even if you'd committed the highest crime in the land, there were six places where you could go. And the priest would say, come in. No one can touch you here. It's weird that we've kind of lost this in our culture. We understand it intuitively, right? Because if you're the one where, you know, the, 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 the dice just get rolled and they come at snake eyes and you find yourself completely off the rails. You want to know that there's a place where you can hide. And over the, the, the centuries, um, we, we, we've missed this. It's interesting, too. I mean, Georgia, the state of Georgia, which is a wonderful state, was begun like this. Do you know the state of Georgia was basically a sanctuary state? It was for people who, in England, had gotten into debtor's prison, and they couldn't get out. They'd made a, bad, they made a mistake, and they did some bad stuff, and they found themselves unable to get out. They, they, were, they had no hope. And James Oglethorpe petitioned the king, and the king said, all right, fine, you can send them all to Georgia. And they did, and they got a second chance, a place where they, they're, 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 the people that had, were after them couldn't get them. They were safe. 
protected. And they got a second shot, a place of refuge, a place of freedom in the midst of a culture that wanted their blood. In the, the sanctuary city, it, it doesn't just stop with, uh, with criminals and suspected criminals. It even um, gets expanded in the book of Joshua to account for illegal immigrants and aliens. Primarily because those people were very suspect. They didn't necessarily follow um, Yahweh worship. And so when things went wrong, they were less protected. In fact, if they did something evil, it was a lot easier to get vengeance on them because they didn't have family to protect them. And so they too were welcomed into the sanctuary cities. For those who have lost their inheritance, God always provides a sanctuary city. You're in Israel and you do something bad, really bad. God doesn't kick you out of the land. He takes away your inheritance. Yeah, you don't have access to your family plot anymore, but you do have a place to run. You got a place where there's respite, where there's refuge, where no one can touch you, where the people who want your blood are not allowed in. You have a place of sanctuary. God does this in the Old Testament. He also does this in heaven. Because God doesn't change. God is the same then and now and forever. And for those who lose their inheritance because they're consumed by whatever inferno they have in their hearts, jealousy or sex or material things or wealth or status or whatever it is, if it consumes you and it destroys you, you, God still remains faithful to you and still provides a place of sanctuary. The church, big C church, not our church, the church used to know this. We have forgotten it. Sanctuary law, uh, sanctuary uh, refuge law, uh, asylum law actually was operating in Christendom, in Christianity, all the way up to the 1600s. The church made churches. These places, they had special exemptions from the law where you could go and be, find refuge, find hope in a world that was coming after you. Uh, I, I got a... Um, a slide here, the, the Durham knocker. This thing, ooh. Notice that this is a, not a pleasant looking thing. It's, yeah, it, and, it, and it's to it kind of remind, so here's what happens. So you, you're out and you're carousing because that's what you do, even though you know you shouldn't. And you get in a fight. And the guy you're fighting doesn't get up. And people are watching. And he starts to bleed heavily from the back of his head. And you go down and you listen, and there's no breath. What you do is you run. And you run all the way to the church. This is the Durham uh, Cathedral in, in England. You run all the way to the church, and you run up to this thing, and this thing's looking at you, and it's saying, You've been bad. That's why this is unpleasant. But there's still a knocker for you, and you knock three times, any time, day or night. There's 
two. Again, they, the, in England, they actually followed the Old Testament law. There's two people in the two priests or whatever in the in the church in Durham who are up 24/7, who are there. So you yell and you yell, you knock three times and you go sanctuary, sanctuary, sanctuary. And then one of them opens the door, and he looks at you and he asks, "What happened?" And you tell him, and then he says, "Come in." For 37 days, no one can touch you. Even the high king can't touch you. Because the church used to understand that we are supposed to be a place of sanctuary. In the War of uh, the Roses, this is kind of a nice story. Um, Elizabeth Woodville was a commoner, like many of us, like my daughter. And my daughter uh, watches Sophia the First and uh, you know all these Disney princess shows, and she wants to be a princess. Well, it actually happened for Elizabeth Woodville. She was uh, one of two women who was uh, drawn from the common uh, folk who became a queen of England by marriage. She married Edward IV during the War of Roses. He was a, a Yorkist. Um, and, and he actually, for just a short period of time, went out of power. And he, uh, he, about six or seven months, they dethroned him. He wasn't king anymore. Now, most of the time, if, you are, uh, if you're a princess, uh, you have a, a, a royal family that protects you, right? Because you're drawn from the noble stock. Okay? Well, Elizabeth didn't have this advantage because she was a commoner. And so when she was you know, kicked out of uh, being queen, she didn't have a family with estates and guards and armed men to run to. So where did she go? Westminster Abbey. And there she had her third child. Because the church used to be a place of sanctuary. We remembered it up until about 1600. It's been lost a little bit. Um, I think that in some ways uh, we do still hold some of this uh, sanctuary idea in our, in our hearts, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it next week. Um, but as a, as a, as a, as a trope, as a, as a strong idea in our society, it's kind of dissipated. It's kind, we've kind of lost it. And that's why it's hard for us to believe in our heart of hearts that even if sin wins... God grants sanctuary in heaven. Even if sin wins, God grants sanctuary in heaven. Listen to this. Paul's uh, in a different place. He's talking. He says, so whether, whether someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. The day will make it clear because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If your work survives, you'll, you'll be rewarded. But if your work goes up in flames, you'll lose it. However, you yourself will be saved as if you had walked through a fire. I think it's an interesting image that you know, Paul's talking about the end. He's talking about the last day. And we get up there, and there's God, and there's Jesus. And, and, and look, what did you do for me, Christian? You believed? Great. What did you do? How did you live your life? And we, we you know, put our things b- before the Lord. Paul uses the, the metaphor of good, uh, gold and silver and, and hay and stubble. Gold and silver being these wonderful things that we've done for the kingdom of God. Hay and stubble being stuff that didn't matter. Maybe even bad stuff. And where it's all put right in front of the Lord. And there's a consuming fire. And it burns clean. And some stuff remains. And some stuff's burn away. But even if everything you have is lost, you are still there 
as if you've walked through fire. And God welcomes you into a sanctuary city. If the inferno burns you up, you're the sin-scorched person. You live your whole life, whole life, dedicated to yourself. You degrade your soul. You participate in things that make for not a good stuff. Imagine where you are. You're exhausted, depressed, and hopeless. You live the death in life against which the scriptures warn. Sin is your master. You serve it, and it destroys you. When you get to heaven, what you're, not, what you're looking for is not, good job. What you're looking for is relief from the flames. Even if the inferno consumes you, heaven is a sanctuary city. Imagine, imagine if we believed that deep down. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to, to, to think this way, primarily because we've lost this notion of inheritance. We've lost this notion of sanctuary city in our culture. It's, it's almost completely gone from us. It sort of lives in this kind of recess. But imagine if it was real to us. Imagine if we believed it. Imagine if we believed that no matter what we did, God was still going to have grace for us on the last day, that God was still going to give us rest and respite no matter how we lived, no matter what we did, as long as we believed in him, as long as we trusted him for salvation, he was going to give it no matter what we did. Imagine if you actually believed that. Imagine what it would be like to fight against your battles and your sin, not from fear, but from freedom. Because you believe God's not asking me to live this way because he's looking to burn me. I'm already burning myself. He's asking me to live this way because it's what's right for me. It's what's good for us. It makes for a community of life, a full, deep, satisfying, fulfilling life, the life that we were meant for from the very beginning. That's why it's not so we can get out of hell free card. Imagine not having to live afraid of the sin that besets you because ultimately it cannot scorch you to destruction. Most importantly, I think if we could live this way, we would recognize God not as a tyrant, but as true, free grace that's truly truly gracious. And then imagine if the church lived believing in the sanctuary city, the truly gracious grace of God that cannot be exhausted, that cannot be spent, that will always find respite even for the most inveterate sinner who believes. I wonder if that might not help with some of our public relations problems. I wonder if the culture might recognize that we don't serve a God who's angry and evil and vicious. It might not assume that we're angry and evil and intolerant and vicious. Maybe we would be allowed to live without harassment. But maybe not. Next week, we're going to um, talk about what it means to recover 
the church as a sanctuary city. An idea that's been lost, we're going to find it again. We're going to recover it. We're going we're to build out an idea of what it looks like for us in this place to be a sanctuary city in the first world west because it has been lost and we need it back. Let's pray. Father, I pray for um, anyone here who is consumed in the inferno that you will give them faith that no matter what, you have a sanctuary city for them in heaven. That there will be relief from the flames, that they will be changed, that the death and life that is lived now will end. I pray that we as a people will trust that, will trust in your gracious grace that you are not looking to scorch, but you are looking to relieve, to end all scorching. God, I pray that we will be a people who live that grace out in life. And we thank you that all it takes is belief in your son because he paid it all, he finished it, There's nothing else we have to do. There's nothing that we can or can't do. That it's all you, it always has been you, and always will be you. In his name we pray, amen.